Hi, a willing nerd here, lacking in sleep to bring you 20 minute summaries of the top news from over 30 weekly pieces and to show you why they matter. I'm Marcel Castro, and here's your homework. Hey everyone, today I'll be covering news from September 30th to October 7th. This week's topics are Trump and COVID-19, the Democratic vice presidential debate, and the interesting news story of the week. An informative note, I get my news from various sources, including Reuters, BBC, CNN, The Guardian, and many more. I will cite the majority of the sources that I use, but if you want to look at my complete list of sources or just want some interesting news pieces, feel free to email here's your hw at gmail.com and your questions will be answered. On to this week's first topic, Trump and COVID-19. This week's news were all about Trump and the coronavirus. We know that on October 3rd, Saturday, Trump was taken to the Walter Reed Hospital after being diagnosed with COVID-19. The American population and the world were worried about President Trump's health. He is 74 years old, he's obese, and hence, he's at a greater risk of having higher complications due to the coronavirus. Here's what he said Saturday, moments before boarding to the hospital. I want to thank everybody for the tremendous support. I'm going to Walter Reed Hospital. I think I'm doing very well but we're going to make sure that things work out. The First Lady is doing very well. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I will never forget it. Thank you. Joe Biden and his wife, Jill Biden, though in contact with Trump during the presidential debate, tested negative for the coronavirus on Friday and wished Trump a quick recovery. Biden stated that this should not be a partisan moment, but a moment for national unity. On October 4th, we got another update from the president and we got slightly contradictory remarks on his health. At first, his medical team had, according to the BBC, a generally upbeat update. However, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows stated that Trump's condition had been, quote, very concerning, close quote. He later sought to clarify these remarks in stating that, yes, the doctors and himself had been concerned, but that the president had, open quote, made unbelievable improvements, close quote, from Friday morning. On September 26th, conservative politicians gathered in the White House Rose Garden for the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Defying the dangers of the coronavirus, most politicians refused to wear masks or abide by social distancing measures, actually seen bumping fists, shaking hands, or even hugging one another, according to the BBC. Though the Trump administration has defended the event by stating that it was conducted outside and hence had less risks, it is still possible that it was this event that caused the massive spread of COVID-19 that we're now seeing in the White House. On October 5th, Trump was criticized over choosing to drive around Walter Reed Hospital, greeting supporters from the inside of his car. Though he was actually sealed in the presidential SUV, which is hermetically sealed against a chemical attack and hence does not let the president in contact with outside air, he may have endangered Secret Service staff 
that was inside the car. This suggests the president's lack of consideration for Secret Service workers. We saw the same lack of consideration on October 5th when President Trump left Walter Reed Medical Center just after 6.30 p.m., arriving to the White House, where he walked inside and removed his mask. Now, let's look at Trump's treatments. Though Trump arrived at the White House on October 5th, I think that it's important to compare, as a BBC article did, Trump's treatments with the average American's treatments. First, we know that Trump had access to a team of doctors and a luxury suite, having a private dining room, an office space, and sofas for visitors. We compare that to the overcrowded ICU wards nationwide. The inequality is quite stark in the United States. Not only that, but people living in rural areas have to travel long distances to get medical treatment while the president was simply able to take a helicopter. Rural places in the United States have less physicians, smaller hospitals, less specialized staff, and more uninsured people. I'm not going against the treatment that was done on President Trump. He is the president of the United States and his health is of the utmost importance. However, it is crucial to note the unequal access to health care in the United States. I believe Professor David J. Peters, a professor in rural sociology at Iowa State University, sums this up very well. As noted in the BBC, he states, open quote, while it may be correct to say that the United States has some of the best healthcare services in the world, it is not accessible to all Americans equally. The poor, minorities, and rural Americans have less access to health care and suffer from worse health outcomes. Close quote. If we were able to see anything from this week, is that first, we saw the President of the United States get infected with the coronavirus due to a carelessness in not respecting social distancing measures and carrying out an event in which most attendees were not wearing masks. And we saw a healthcare system that provides great care for those with power and for those that are wealthy, and yet often forgets of the people in rural America with low incomes needing the most help. On to this week's second topic, the vice presidential debate. Unlike the presidential debate, I believe the vice presidential debate was slightly more civil. Of course, we still had a problem with unequal speaking time for both candidates. Indeed, it appears that Mike Pence spoke for around three minutes more than Kamala Harris, often due to his own refusal to stop speaking when his time was up. Here are the main points from each candidate. First, Kamala Harris. Point one, in Kamala Harris's view, the Trump administration incompetently handled the coronavirus at the expense of the financial welfare and safety of the American people. Kamala Harris noted the over 7 million cases of COVID-19 in the United States and the over 210,000 dead due to the virus. Moreover, she criticized the Trump administration's attempts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act taking away protections from those with pre-existing conditions, which could be worsened due to side effects after contracting COVID-19. Kamala Harris returned to the criticism that Biden also made in the presidential debate, criticizing the Trump administration for not sharing information about the severity and the dangers of the virus with the American people in January, when they already knew 
of its dangers. We know of this, of course, because of Bob Woodward's interview with Trump. Kamala Harris's second point is about the economy. She made clear that a democratic administration aims for employment and innovation. She stated that a Biden administration would repeal Trump's tax cuts on day one. They would increase taxes on those who earn over $400,000 a year. And they would invest in infrastructure, clean and renewable energy, innovation, and research and development, thus increasing employment in the United States. Kamala Harris cited data analysis from a Wall Street firm that affirms that Biden's plan will create 7 million more jobs than Trump's plan in four years. Kamala Harris showed that the Democrats wanted to focus on education. She noted that students will have access to two years of free community college and for families making less than $125,000 a year, they will be able to attend public university for free. Regarding student loan debt, she notes that all student loan debt will be cut by $10,000. These are the Democrats' plans for the American economy. Harris's third point was about the environment. She made clear that the Democrats' focus is on science and employment. The Democrats believe in climate change. However, they choose to deal with this by also applying an economic lens. Though the Democrats desire to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, they will also not ban fracking and will deal with climate change to create jobs. Though they aim to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 and be carbon neutral by 2035, they also state that many of the jobs that will be created by the Biden administration will be in the renewable energy sector, providing high paying jobs for many American workers. Harris's fourth point was about racism. The Democrats acknowledge that racism exists, that an implicit bias exists, and that it is crucial to use government policy to hold the police accountable. Kamala Harris made clear that the goal for the Biden administration is to achieve equal justice under the law. She claimed that the Democrats do not condone violence and instead suggested policies to reform the American criminal justice system and policing. First, they aim to ban chokeholds and carotid holds. Second, they will require a national registry for police officers who break the law. Third, on the issue of criminal justice reform, they will get rid of private prisons and cash bail. And fourth, they aim to decriminalize marijuana and remove or expunge the records of those convicted due to marijuana. These are the four main takeaways that we can get from Kamala Harris at the vice presidential debate. Now on to Mike Pence. I have to mention the fact that a small fly landed on his head during the debate. But you know what? He kept his cool. I admire his effort on truly disregarding the fly. The first point that Mike Pence made was about Trump's success in handling the coronavirus. He noted that Trump banned all travel from China, saving hundreds of thousands of American lives. Trump conducted widespread testing, delivered personal protective equipment, and has encouraged the effective development of experimental treatments and vaccines. Mike Pence reiterated Trump's claims that they will have a vaccine and supposedly distribute this vaccine by the end of the year. 
Mike Pence's second point was about the economy. He noted that the Trump administration succeeded in increasing American incomes and thus benefiting the American economy. He noted the rise in wages for blue-collar workers, which led to an average income increase of $4,000 after President Trump's tax cuts. And he noted that Trump was fighting for free trade, which he states occurs under Trump. However, later in the debate, he noted and defended the tariffs that Trump has imposed on Chinese goods. Again, we see a contradiction from Pence. He states that Donald Trump desires free trade and it imposes protective measures against Chinese goods. If Trump really were as capitalist as he desires to seem, then he would not impose protectionist measures in the United States and instead would allow American firms to compete with Chinese firms. What we need to understand is that countries impose protectionist measures in order to safeguard their national industries, often because lower labor costs in foreign nations and subsidies from foreign nations give foreign companies an unfair advantage over national industries. Hence, Trump is for American domestic industries. Free trade isn't a part of that. So for Mike Pence, I say, choose your side. Mike Pence's third point was about the environment. When questioned about climate change, he stated as follows. As I said, Susan, the climate is changing. We'll follow the science. Stated that he would follow the science and yet seems to be doing the exact opposite. We know that the science tells us that the greenhouse gases that we produce today will lead to a worse tomorrow. Will lead to a tomorrow in which people are displaced due to flooded homes and burned homes and natural disasters and the science tells us that we should be doing something now before it's too late. Instead, Mike Pence stated that he is proud of Donald Trump's actions for environmental conservation. He noted the Outdoors Act, which invested in public lands and public parks. He critiqued the Paris Climate Accord and reiterated President Trump's statements from the presidential debate, which claimed that forest management is of the utmost importance. Again, the United States needs forest management because wildfires are truly hurting the country. However, forest fires are increasing in intensity because of climate change, because of rising temperatures. And to combat rising temperatures, we must combat fossil fuels and invest in renewable energy, which the Trump administration is against doing. Mike Pence's fourth point was about racial inequality. Pence stated that he trusts the American justice system and actually found it surprising that Kamala Harris criticizes a justice system while being a part of it. Most important, however, was the following statement. This presumption that you hear consistently uh, from Joe Biden and Kamala Harris that uh, that America is systemically racist. And that as Joe Biden said, that he believes that law enforcement has an implicit bias against minorities is, is a great insult to the men and women who serve in law enforcement. And here, I think, we come to a core issue in American politics. Republicans hold the idea that patriotism and criticism are mutually exclusive. Penn states that by acknowledging implicit bias and by acknowledging systemic racism, 
you are insulting the United States as a nation and you are insulting the American people. He reflects Trump's statements from the presidential debate in which he stated that racial sensitivity training was teaching people to hate the United States. I understand the U.S. is a country rooted in patriotism. It is rooted in the ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is a freedom-loving country. It is a country founded on diversity, on immigration, and it has a beautiful history of people fighting for their rights and for their freedoms. But the American people must understand that criticizing your nation does not mean you hate your nation. Systemic racism is prevalent in the United States. You must acknowledge your country's flaws because that is what patriotism is about. Because patriotism means loving your country enough that you understand that you must improve it. Here are some statistics on U.S. racial inequality. One in two black adults with a college degree or more have had a family member in jail or prison. One in 1,000 black men and boys will die at the hands of the police. One in three black children live in poverty. One in five black borrowers are turned down for conventional loan. One in 13 black adults were not able to see a doctor or go to the hospital in the past three months because they could not afford it. All this data from brookins.edu. And of course, relating to police violence, according to The Independent, data from 2013 to 2019 shows that African Americans in the United States are 2.5 times more likely to be killed by police than white people in the United States. So if you agree with Mike Pence, trust the data and understand that the science shows that the United States is systemically racist, shows that African Americans have less income, less opportunities, access to less healthcare, and access to less education. And because of that, you must work for a more equal country. You must increase education. You must increase school integration. You must decrease prejudice and increase opportunities. Ignoring systemic racism does not make you love your country. Ignoring systemic racism leads to civil unrest. Acknowledge systemic racism. I say this to Mike Pence, trust the science and understand that any administration that enters the White House must battle systemic racism in the United States of America. Another more positive takeaway from this debate was, at least for me, Kamala Harris as a truly inspirational figure. Regardless, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, or whether you have absolutely no opinion on the American political system, watch Kamala Harris. Because in this debate, she was an example of a strong, independent, and powerful woman. She exemplified how we women have a place on the debate stage, have a place in politics, possess political power, and should have the courage to stand up for our views. Here's one of Kamala Harris's best lines from the debate. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. <laughs> I'm speaking. If you don't mind letting me finish, we can Please. then have a conversation, okay? Please. Okay. On to this week's interesting news story of the week. Nobel Prizes were announced. On Monday, the prize for physiology or medicine was announced, with winners being doctors 
Harvey J. Alter, Michael Hewton, and Charles Rice. They won the prize for, for the discovery of the hepatitis C virus. On Tuesday, the Physics Nobel Prize was awarded to the following scientists. Roger Penrose, Reinhard Genzel, and Andrea Guess for their work in improving the understanding of the universe, including their work on black holes. Penrose, a British mathematical physicist, won his share of the prize for using mathematical techniques to prove that the formation of black holes is a consequence of Einstein's general theory of relativity, and hence he proved that black holes can truly exist. This was groundbreaking in a paper that Penrose published in 1965 and surprised even Einstein, who had declared in 1939 that black holes, open quotes, do not exist in physical reality, close quote. Professor Genzel, a German astrophysicist, and Professor Gez, an American astronomer, both were honored for their work in which they used telescopes on our galaxy to capture and provide evidence for the supermassive object in the center of the Milky Way, which experts say can only be a black hole. All of this according to The Guardian. On Wednesday, the Nobel Prize for Chemistry was awarded to two women, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Dunna. Both were awarded for their work on the development of a method for genome editing. This method is actually likened to genetic scissors, and it is able to cut the DNA molecule at a chosen site. This technology has endless potential from being used to treat genetic illnesses to creating disease-resistant crops and many more applications. All this according to chemistryworld.com. The Nobel Prize for Literature was awarded to American poet Louise Gluck, and the Nobel Peace Prize on Friday was awarded to the World Food program for its efforts in combating global hunger amidst the pandemic. We know that the second sustainable development goal is to achieve zero world hunger by 2030 and the UN World Food Program has been instrumental in that goal. Knowing that one in nine people worldwide do not have enough to eat, the World Food Program's actions are crucial for saving the lives of millions of people. In 2019, the WFP assisted 97 million people in 88 countries. Indeed, according to the organization's website, on any given day, the WFP has 5,600 trucks, 30 ships, and nearly 100 planes on the move to deliver food plus other assistances. Every year, the World Food Program distributes over 15 billion rations, with an estimated average cost per ration of around 61 cents. Congratulations are in order for each one of those winners. Next week, the Nobel Prize for Economics will be awarded and you will be hearing more of that on next week's podcast. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode of Here's Your Homework. If you have any comments, questions, doubts, want to review my sources or just want to start up some debate, feel free to contact me at heresyourhw at gmail.com and your questions will be answered. Join me next week for another episode of Here's Your Homework, weekly news from a willing nerd.